Thank you. Um, as an undergrad, uh, I ended up as a history professor, but as an undergrad, I actually didn't take any history. Uh, I was a linguistics major. I love language. I love words. And I, I just find it absolutely kind of amazing that I can have an idea in my head, and I can vibrate my vocal cords and move my mouth around and stuff like that to create a vibration in the air that your ear picks up, and suddenly the idea that was in my head is now in yours. You ever think about that? That's a really amazing thing. Uh, where, where I want to begin is actually sort of jumping off, to some extent, on the assassination with language. There was a poet, language scholar generally, by the name of John Chardy, who back in the 1980s, early 1980s, on public radio's morning edition, did a thing called a word ramble, where he would just pick a word or a, a theme and, and words related to it and just talk about how these words played themselves out in different ways uh, in our language. So he'll talk about archery and how it leads you to the concept of a debutante. You know, he'd do stuff like that. And there's actually a logical connection if you know your history of language. What I want to do here is I want to start off with a word ramble on the word enchantment. Now, I used the word enchantment yesterday. I gave you Tolkien's definition. Uh, for Tolkien, enchantment was the thing that makes a story appealing, makes it desirable, makes you want to be in it, both the author of the story and the reader. It's, it's that quality in art that lets you enter the world and makes you want to be there. I'm not going to use that definition. I'm going to use sort of the traditional definition of enchantment. Uh, the, the word enchantment, its roots, come, it literally means to sing into something. We've got the word chant, or sing, and the prefix n is in. So you're singing into something. What, what, what does that mean? Well, obviously it's a way, again, not using Tolkien's definition here, it's a way that you put magic into something. You enchant it, and through, well, singing into it, you make the thing magical. So we've got the word enchantment here, from enchant. Now, enchantment from there can be used metaphorically. So we can talk, for example, about an enchanting evening. An evening that sort of feels magical. Or an enchanting young woman. A young woman who kind of casts a spell on you. We'll get back to spell later. Now, when we think of an enchanting young woman, another term that we could use for this enchanting young woman is she is charming. A charm is another word for a magical object, magical device. So again, she casts a spell on you. She's charming. And charming and enchanting young women are, well, glamorous. The word glamour is a word that means a spell. Typically, an illusion. That's what the word glamour originally was. It was an illusion. So once again, we've got this idea of magic being kind of brought into it. Well, as we all know, glamorous women, if you go to any magazine, uh, glamorous women are also uh, users of cosmetics. Okay. Cosmetics, the root word of cosmetics is the word cosmos. Cosmos, we think of as the world. But in Greek, the concept of the cosmos was, yes, it was the world, but it was the world as a system of ordered beauty. 
about the relationship between order and beauty, they're united in the Greek word cosmos. The cosmos is the world as a system of ordered beauty. And when you are cosmeticizing someone, <laughs> you, you are creating a system of ordered beauty um, with the person. That, that's what you are doing. Now, going back to the word glamour, interestingly enough, the word glamour is also related to the word grammar, R rather than L, grammar. Um, and that connects via a word called grammary, which is an old Scots-English word that refers to any kind of learning, but especially occult learning, especially knowledge about, well, magic and fairy and things like that. And from grammary, we then that gets reduced to the word grammar, which becomes the foundational word that we use to describe all skills in language. Uh, it includes things like your name would fall under this broad category of grammar. Now, your name, uh, in most ancient systems of thought, your name points to the reality of who you are. It points to your identity. But it also connects into magic, because if you know the true name for something, you have control over it. And if you have any doubt about that, consider uh, you're in a crowded room and someone calls your name. It doesn't matter what you are doing, your attention is instantly focused on the person who said that. They do have power over you. Okay. But name is connected with identity. Uh, but, but grammar also ties in, of course, to words. Okay. So we use words as part of our, our, grammatical, uh, our grammatical structures. Now, word, once again going to Greek, the Greek word for word is logos. Uh, in the beginning was, in John 1, in the beginning was the logos, in the beginning was the word. So it actually connects into the character of God or the nature of God himself. Logos is, doesn't just mean word, it means uh, reason, it's rational thought, it's all of these things. In fact, Logos is the root of our word logic. So logic ultimately connects back through this chain to the concepts of ultimately enchantment. And then words, as we all know, uh, anybody who's been through school, you have to learn to spell the word. Spelling. The word spell comes from the proto-Old High German word spellam, which uh, means to tell or to speak or to, to give a discourse, something like that. I'm engaged in doing the spellam right now. I'm giving you a discourse, okay? So it's related to this idea of communication more broadly, but it's also worth knowing that Spellam doesn't only give us the word spell as in spelling a word, it also gives us the word spell as in casting a spell. So we're back to magic again. And of course, if you're going to do a spell, the most common way of doing it is through an incantation, which is Latin for to sing into something, so we're all the way back to enchantment. Okay. So we've gone full circle here. Okay. Now, what's the point of this? Aside from the fact that I like to play with words, what's the point of this? The point is probably best illustrated by a quote from a German sociologist, Max Weber. 
1918, uh, he did a book called Science as a Vocation. And he was talking, he's a sociologist, he was talking about the state of the world when he was writing in 1918, right after World War I. And this is what he had to say. The fate of our times is characterized by rationalization and intellectualization, and above all, by the disenchantment of the world. Precisely the ultimate and most sublime values have retreated from public life into either the transcendental realm of mystic life or into the brotherliness of direct and personal human relations. It is not accidental that our greatest art is intimate and not monumental. Weber is arguing that the world has become disenchanted, which he associates with the highest values that exist, the highest values of life themselves, are essentially lost in our world. This is not too far off from what Friedrich Nietzsche said a couple of decades earlier in a book called The Gay Science, which that's the English translation. Um, and this is a rather famous statement. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has led to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatest the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Nietzsche's concept of the death of God really boils down to the death of meaning, the death of purpose. He believed that the modern world, the world of modern science, had ultimately removed the need for God from the world. We don't really recognize any need for him. But along with getting rid of God, we've gotten rid of all of these other things, meaning, purpose, value, everything else. And this is what Weber is talking about, essentially the same thing that Weber is talking about when he refers to the disenchantment of the world. Weber spells this out in terms that, you know, he, he defines what it is that has led to the world being disenchanted. He talks about it being the effect of the Enlightenment. He talks about it being science, bureaucracy, <laughs> I can relate to that one, um, industrialization, technology. All of these kinds of things are the things that remove meaning, purpose, the most sublime values, all of those things from the world, they all sort of disappear under the assault of these things. This is the world that Tolkien lived in. He served in the Great War, World War I. And coming out of the war, this is the point when Weber is talking about the disenchantment of the world. This is the point where Weber is pointing to all of these things as causes for the loss of meaning, the loss of value, the loss of purpose in the world. This is one of the reasons why Tolkien hates factories. It's one of the reasons why you have his anti-technology bias, because he sees this not just in terms of polluting the world and destroying the natural world, but I think he also recognizes 
that this tendency toward rationalization, industrialization, intellectualization, all these things that Weber talked about, these things affect our mindset. They affect the way we see the world. And Tolkien recognized, I believe, the dangers of that. And so it's more than just, I don't like the factories belching smoke. It's, I don't like the factories belching smoke and what that means for us in terms of how we see and we interact with the world. So Weber talks about this in Shem. What is this? Well, to Weber, it's the end of magic. We no longer have any magic in the world. It's the end of religion. It's the end of belief. Uh, it's the end of, of, there's no longer any source for morals, values, meaning, all of those kinds of things. We've reduced the world to a world of facts without meaning. If you were to bring a medieval thinker forward to the modern world, what that medieval thinker, their reaction would be, wow, your technology is amazing. I especially love databases. Because the medieval mind was very, very well ordered. And databases is a way of organizing information. They'd love that. C.S. Lewis talks about the card catalog in, um, in the discarded image as being the thing the medieval would most appreciate. We've got to update that to databases. But what he would say, I think, is... You know, you know what your problem is? You guys know a lot, but you understand nothing. You have all of these facts. You have all of this knowledge, but you do not understand any of the significance of what it is you're looking at. To the medieval mind, and this is the mind that Lewis and Tolkien were very much connected with. To the medieval mind, Everything in the world had meaning, not just factuality. I'll give you a case in point. We heard uh, uh, someone raise the, uh, the point about cathedrals. You know, that, that there are cathedrals in Europe where there are carvings up in the attic that no one will see but God himself. Okay? And they did that because they were doing it to the glory of God. But let, let, let's take a look at the cathedral just sort of more broadly. And I'm thinking here particularly of French Gothic. I'm a French historian, so why not? The way a cathedral was laid out, if you, when you were going to put up a cathedral, what would happen is the bishop would stand with his crozier, his staff, and he would, at sunrise on Easter, and he would hold the staff there, and the shadow cast by that staff, when the sun rose on Easter morning, that would provide the main axis for the church. That would be the east-west line. They didn't have compasses, they couldn't, you know, that it was good enough. Because what's important isn't that it be a true east-west line. What's important is that it is at least conceptually or symbolically east-west. Why is that? Well, when you lay out the cathedral, you have the nave, which is the central part of the cathedral, goes along that east-west line. They'll typically add transepts, which is a crossing piece, which turns it into a cross shape that's appropriate for a Christian church. The altar is always on the east, and the main door, the royal portal as it's called, is always therefore on the west. Okay. Now, why is the altar on the east? Because of Solomon. When Solomon gave his prayer of dedication at the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem, he said, when people pray toward this temple, hear their prayer and answer it. 
is symbolically toward Jerusalem. They couldn't take a direct bearing. They didn't have the technology for that. But Jerusalem was in the east. And so by putting the altar in the east, when you're praying toward the altar, you're praying toward Jerusalem. And this is in fulfillment then, or in, in, in anticipation of fulfillment of Solomon's prayer, that the prayers you make toward the altar will be heard by God. Uh, let's take this a step further. The cathedral itself was supposed to represent the new Jerusalem. You've got stained glass windows, the statues are all painted and polychromed and things like that. They're much more colorful than we think of them. They're incredibly bright and colorful. And the stained glass windows were intended to remind you of jewels. And we know from Revelation that in the new Jerusalem, the foundations of the new Jerusalem are made of jewels. So this is supposed to remind you of that. It's the most beautiful, brilliantly colored thing in anybody's life when you enter into this. But where do you enter from? You enter from the royal portal on the west side. That's the main door. And in every French Gothic church, over the main portal, there's a tympanum that's sort of the archway over the door. And on that tympanum is either the scene from Revelation 4, Christ seated on the throne in heaven with the four living creatures around him. Those are kind of early. Or later on, and more commonly, it's Jesus seated on the throne in judgment. Christ as the judge of the living and the dead. When you enter the church from the royal portal, the west side, well, what happens in the west every day? The sun goes down. The west is the direction of the end of the day, Therefore, symbolically, it is the direction of the end of time. So when you enter from the west, you are entering the new Jerusalem at the end of time, passing under the judgment seat of Christ as you are going in, heading toward the new Jerusalem. Everything to the medieval mind has meaning. For us, it's just a bunch of facts. They have the doors on the west, they have altars on the east. Who knows why, who really cares? It's just how they lay them out. Everything has meaning. We know a lot, but we understand nothing. I think that would be the assessment of any medieval thinker brought into the modern world. Disenchantment is what <coughs> destroys meaning. It goes beyond that, though. Remember our word ramble? Enchantment leads you to a whole bunch of other things. It leads you to, well, disenchantment, excuse me, enchantment, to enchanting, to charming, to glamorous, to cosmetics, to cosmos. When the world is disenchanted, you lose your system of ordered beauty. Your mental life, you just completely lose touch with that. As a matter of fact, I take it a step further. It's not just ordered beauty in general. It's beauty, specifically, is lost. I'll give you some examples in a minute. So we lose beauty. We lose the, the idea of order, this ordered beauty. We also lose grammar. Remember we went from glamour to grammar? We also lose grammar. We lose our name. We lose our identity. We, don't, we no longer know who we are. Words lose their meaning. Meaning, purpose, disappear, logic disappears. All of these things go when you have a disenchanted world. Now, it doesn't happen immediately. It takes time for the effect of disenchantment to ripple through the culture. Nothing happens on a large scale instantly. 
But these things happen step by step as we move through the history of Western culture in the 20th century. Now, there's a danger. All of these things point to the fact that there's a danger in disenchantment. The question becomes, how do you deal with this? For Nietzsche, the first guy who really talked about this, although he didn't really use the term disenchantment, for Nietzsche, the, the solution would be found in what he called an Übermensch, which is German, it's usually translated Superman. Literally, it would be better to translate it as Overman. But the, the Übermensch is someone who looks out at the world, he recognizes that there is no real meaning or purpose or anything else in the world, so he decides to create it for himself by a sheer act of will. The will to power, that should all automatically cue you in for the problem here. The will to power allows the Übermensch to create a vision of meaning and purpose in everything else that is so compelling that the other people follow him. Hitler saw himself as an Übermensch. He provided a vision that was strong and powerful, and by sheer force of will, he dragged Germany along with him. And that's the danger of Nietzsche's solution. But Nietzsche believed that that was what would be necessary because in the absence of meaning or purpose or anything else, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to supply something for people to live for. And so he saw the solution in the Übermensch. Weber had different solutions. He thought that science itself might be able to provide meaning for people. Uh, this is rather ironic because he sees science as being one of the things that removes meaning, that disenchants the but he thought, nonetheless, people could sort of rally around science and use that sort of the Star Trek vision of the future. Um, rally around science and use that as your source of meaning or purpose. Um, he did, however, fear that Nietzsche was right and that a charismatic leader, a demagogue, would come up who would do it, basically an Übermensch would do it. He was afraid that that might happen. His hope was that science would provide the solution. Then you move a little bit further forward and you get the existentialists. Uh, the existentialists are, it's essentially, if you want to understand existentialism, it's nihilism light, uh, L-I-T-E. Um, the nihilist, like Nietzsche, believes that there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there's nothing like that in, in the world, period. The existentialist comes along and says, well, that's true. To live an authentic life, you have to, that's a big word for the, the existentialist, to live an authentic life, you have to recognize that the world really is meaningless and purposeless and all of that kind of thing. But you can look inside yourself and find something within yourself that you can live for. This is living authentically. So even in the face of, of the absurdity of the world, even in the face of the meaninglessness of the world, you can essentially shake your fist in its face and say, yeah, I know that there's no meaning or purpose or anything like that, but I'm going to live for this anyway because I choose to do that. So to the existentialist, you need to become your own Übermensch. So these are some of the, the broader intellectual currents that we see happening. Interestingly enough, when you look at American society, things go in a kind of a different direction. And what I'm going to point to here, you know, you, you have, you know, you, you've got the, you know, the disenchantment uh, is articulated in 1918, you then go through the Roaring Twenties, Roaring Twenties, Depression, World War II, and then you move to the post-war generation here. 
And the post-war generation is really interesting. The, the, well, the post-war era, the 1950s. A lot of people seem to consider, a lot of Christians seem to consider the 1950s sort of a golden age of Christianity in America. I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> because it really wasn't. The 1950s is the period in which Weber's disenchantment is embraced as the social norm. Uh, in terms of Christianity, yeah, it is sort of the golden age of liberal Protestantism, which is a religion that, was, that had you going to church on Sunday, getting married, baptized, that kind of thing, and sort of adhering to traditional Christian ideas of morality, sort of conventional morality. But it didn't really provide a whole lot more than that. Instead, the society was really built around science, it was built around technology. It was built around business. Um, all of these things that Weber identified as sources of disenchantment. And so people just sort of went along. There, there's the post-war prosperity. People were doing well economically and all of that. And that sort of put them to sleep in a lot of ways. And they embraced all of these things that Weber says really lead to disenchantment. Interesting one here, though, is science, particularly. Science is viewed sort of schizophrenically in the 50s. It's both a, a threat, you've got the looming threat of nuclear war over your head, but it's also seen as a, as a potential source of salvation. Okay, so that's the 1950s. What comes out of that? We have a disenchanted world We've got a broader culture that is asleep, that more or less embraces disenchantment. What happens? There's a reaction against it. Because people, the ones who were more awake, the people who were more sensitive, who were aware of these things, recognized that what the culture was offering was effectively nothing. There was no meaning, there was no purpose. Everything's just all done up by convention, all of these kinds of things. So you see, um, in 1955, the movie Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean. This is also the era in which you are seeing the sexual revolution beginning to have an impact on American society. Worth noting, sexual revolution, the term itself goes, dates back to the 1930s, to a guy by the name of Wilhelm Reich, who was part of the Frankfurt School, at least for a while, until he got so weird they kicked him out. Uh, the, the, the Frankfurt School was, was where we get the new left, and it's actually essentially the source of cultural Marxism in America. Wilhelm Reich coins this idea of the sexual revolution because in his mind, uh, because of a combination of, of Freudian thought, he was a psychiatrist, and Marxism, he sort of combines them. And uh, without going through the details, he believes that in order to take out bourgeois society, the great enemy of the communists, we need to undermine the foundation of bourgeois society, which is the natural family. And so we need to get rid of all kinds of sexual norms and mores and stuff like that to get rid of the natural family so that we can then move on to our communist utopia. Oh, and by the way, this fits in with Freud because Freud says that these... Uh, sexual taboos are the things that cause mental illness. So this, this is a win-win. You make people happier and all that kind of thing, and you get rid of the capitalists. Okay. That's the root of the, idea of the ideas from the sexual revolution from the 30s. This is beginning to be promoted actively in the United States by uh, a variety of people. The Kinsey reports, um, uh, 
Planned Parenthood, uh, even the emergence of Playboy, uh, in 19, all, all of which are operating right around 1953. This is beginning to move into American society and is becoming, if not mainstreamed, at least more culturally acceptable. I mean, the Kinsey reports and things like that were regular features on late night comedy shows. They were moving their way, infiltrating the culture. And then, of course, it explodes with the counterculture in the 1960s, where people begin, you know, the, the uh, counterculture begins embracing a lot of these sexual attitudes and things like that, along with a bunch of other things. Ideas from the new left and, and a range of other things as well. This is also the era in which Tolkien was discovered, really effectively discovered in America. It's the 1960s counterculture that actually moves Tolkien into the mainstream. Why is all of this happening? I would argue, there are a lot of reasons, but I would argue fundamentally it's about the fact that the culture of the 50s was largely disenchanted and people were looking for a way to re-enchant it, a way to find meaning, a way to find purpose, a way to find values, all of these kinds of things. And so you begin seeing the emergence of the counterculture, which is a rebellion against the disenchanted mainstream culture. You see the embracing of the sexual revolution, you see a whole host of things like that, and you see rediscovery of Tolkien. So much so that some of the main uh, uh, rock groups in the era actually did concept albums surrounding Tolkien. So, re-enchantment, when you're dealing with, with a world that is disenchanted, re-enchantment is more or less inevitable. Because people cannot really live for long without a sense of meaning. I mean, in, I suppose in the 50s you had a, a sense of purpose, which was to live the American dream. But that ends up ultimately falling flat because there's no meaning in that. And one of the ways you can look at the counterculture and all of these kinds of things and the recovery of Tolkien is in, it's a part of an effort to find meaning, to re-enchant the world. Now, I would argue that the counterculture obviously doesn't exactly succeed in doing that entirely. But what happens during the 60s lays the foundation for a lot, you know, it, it, like any cultural movement goes up and down, the 80s were a totally different thing. But it actually ends up laying the foundation for continuing efforts to re-enchant the culture. Because we are seeing this in a variety of ways in major movements that exist in American society today. Let me pause for a moment, though, and note one other thing. Um, I seem to have missed something somewhere along the way because I have my pages in the wrong order. Um, okay, <laughs> let, 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 let me pause for a moment and note one thing. We talked last time about the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. These actually exist like Russian nesting dolls in a lot of ways. When you get your disenchanted world and when people are working to systematically eliminate you know, all of the things that we just talked about before, eliminate beauty, okay, what, what happens when you eliminate beauty? 
Well, it turns out that beauty is the gateway to goodness and truth. Beauty stands guard over goodness and truth. So the first thing, if you're going to get rid of the transcendentals, the first thing you have to do is get rid of beauty. So what do we see happening in the 20th century with art? We see Dada. We see a destruction of the use of image. We see uh, abstract impressionism. Uh, and increasingly in the world today, we see art that has absolutely no relationship to beauty, no desire to do beauty. Instead, all they want is desire to shock, to disrupt. Beauty disappears in a disenchanted world because you lose beauty, you lose cosmos, you lose all sense of order. Remember ordered beauty? Modern art is anything but ordered. And it's anything but beautiful. Once you get rid of beauty, it allows you to go after the next one, which is uh, the good. And so what you see is an attack on moral standards in the sexual revolution. You have an attack on all kinds of other things. This follows the loss of beauty. You have an attack on all kinds of other things that are norms of goodness that are recognized. Remember, there's an objective good and evil. Suddenly, the idea that good and evil are objective gets thrown out. And with that, you also have a whole lot of, frankly, well, evil behavior becoming mainstream, becoming normalized. And once you got beauty and goodness out of the way, the last one to fall is truth. And in case you haven't noticed, we are living in a post-truth society. The very concept of truth really, frankly, does not exist in a lot of modern culture. It used to be ethics were situational and relative. Now truth is situational and relative. And that, in turn, ties into what I would describe as a continuing effort to try to find a way to re-enchant. In the mainstream culture, this really consists of finding causes to line up behind. Because a cause gives you purpose, it gives you meaning, it gives you something to fight for. Not necessarily the good, which is worth fighting for, but it gives you something to fight for. Um, this shows up in some schools of feminism, which are, well, I'll introduce this term in a minute, I just will do it now. Uh, a sociologist by the name of Philip Reith talks about um, what he calls, well, there are two words that he uses that are important here. One of them is a death work. A death work is something that is designed to tear down what already exists in society without any idea of replacing it with anything. It is a purely negative way of analyzing and reacting to the world. It consists of tearing down or destroying what's in front of you. Not necessarily, like I say, because I've got a better vision, I want to put this in place. It's just, this is terrible, let's get rid of it. What's going to follow, I don't know and I don't care. All that's important is we get rid of this. This then ties in with another term from Reef that he calls an anti-culture. Um, an anti-culture is a, an approach to the world or an approach to culture 
that is based entirely around the idea of tearing down what's in front of you without a clear idea of what's replacing it. The two death works in the anti-culture go hand in glove. What you see in many modern movements today is an anti-culture, and it consists largely of death works. So, for example, in some versions of feminism, not all, but some versions of feminism, the entire goal consists of destroying the patriarchy, whatever that is. And the patriarchy, by the way, is defined as pretty much whatever it is that has power in society. It's more than just more than just what the traditional word would mean. So some versions of feminism are dedicated entirely to the death work of destroying patriarchy without really a clear vision of anything that follows. But it gives them a cause. It's a negative cause, but it's a cause. It's a purpose. We're here to destroy the patriarchy. The LGB, excuse me, 2SLGBTQQIA+. That's the latest one I've seen. Um, that movement, um, it's actually rather incoherent. Uh, historically, lesbians and gays never really got along with each other because they didn't really have much in common. <laughs> and if you think about it, if you accept the idea of transsexuals, being lesbian or gay makes no sense at all. It's an incoherent movement. There's no reason why these, these groups should be working with each other because they all want something different and in some cases, contradictory. If transgenderism is true, there's no such thing as, as being gay or lesbian. Why are they working together? They're working together because it's a death work. All they are interested in is tearing down heteronormativity, tearing down the idea of heterosexual marriage and the norm that uh, for heterosexual relationships. That's all that they're after. It's the only thing they have in common. And if they succeed, and they're looking like they're going to, if they succeed in making this work in American society, pretty soon they're going to turn on each other because they have no other, they have no other reason for, for banding together. Or you could look at um, critical race theory, or more broadly, critical theory. Critical theory is a Christian heresy, actually. What do I mean by that? Um, the word heresy comes from a Greek word, hyrene, which means to choose. And the idea in a heresy, originally, what, what the word pointed to, was that you would point to one thing in, in the gospel, in, in Christianity. You would point to one thing in it that was true, and you would raise that to an absolute. You would take it and you'd run with it so far it would distort the rest of the faith. Yeah. Critical theory, in that sense, is a Christian heresy. Why? Well, if you look at cultures across the world, I don't care where you go around the world, people who are weak and oppressed were considered weak and oppressed because they deserved it. They were intrinsically inferior, or they lacked the power or the ability to take power themselves, and so they got what they deserved. Uh, uh, probably the prime example of this that I can think of is the Athenians. Remember the Athenians, this paragon of democracy that we look up to? During the Peloponnesian War, there was an island there that was neutral that the 
Athenians decided they needed to have out of the way. And when the people on the island complained that this was unjust, they shouldn't be doing this, this was wrong, uh, the Athenian response was, the strong do what they will, the weak suffer what they must. If you've got power, you can exert it, and if you're weak, that's your problem. You experience whatever it is that those who are more powerful than you want to impose on you. That was the world, except in Judaism. In Judaism, because God says all people are made in the image of God, and made in his own image, because God says that the poor and the weak have intrinsic value, and therefore you will not oppress them. And then this passes into Christianity, who actually heightens it and insists on the moral and spiritual equality of all people, all people are equal before God. Unlike Israel, where God was working through a specific nation, now God is working internationally among all people. All people, therefore, are made in the image of God. All of them are intrinsically worthy. All of them have intrinsic dignity. Therefore, it is wrong to oppress the weak. This is a contribution of Christianity to world culture. What does critical theory do? It takes this idea, correct idea, that oppression is wrong, and it makes it the sole absolute determiner of value or anything else in society. It runs with it so far that it rejects everything else. It makes oppression the one sin so that the oppressed are innocent. There's a whole host of other things. I've got, I've got entire seminars on this. I'm not going to go through much more detail on this. But it's Christian heresy. What are they doing, though? They're trying to find justice in this world, or to put it differently, they've identified a cause, they've identified a purpose, they've identified something that can give their lives meaning by pursuing their concept of justice in the world. They're re-enchanting the world. They're, remember, paper is the removal of meaning, purpose, values, all that kind of thing. Critical theory provides all that. It is a way of re-enchanting the world. We can look at green politics, um, what's sometimes called dark green spirituality. Um, this is where the sole good, the highest good in all, and again, another arguably another Christian heresy, the sole good in society is the preservation of the environment. And the evil, it, it consists of environmental degradation caused by human activity. The cause by human activity is important because it allows you to pinpoint a villain and it allows you to do something about it. That's cause, it's purpose, it gives meaning, it gives value. It's a reenchantment of the world. And in some versions of this sort of thing, now, God wants us to be good stewards of the world. He tells Adam to tend and protect the garden. <clears throat> the earth is the Lord's, not ours. We're just stewards of it. Okay. So that much is true. But to turn it into the soul, the single absolute, the cause that you follow above all others, to be, to, you know, that is, that's simply wrong. That's, that's the mistake. We should be environmentalists, but we should be environmentalists with our eyes open and with a more balanced view of what that means than what you get in your view of these sort of earth first types. 
Now, it's worth noting that in some cases, the people who are actually doing this as dark green spirituality actually see the earth as a living organism. The earth is literally our mother. And what's important is that we protect mom. And this is almost literally the language of the If you want to understand how that one works, watch the movie Avatar, if you haven't seen it already. Um, I don't really recommend it, but it, it's, 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 a good, it's a good illustration of the way that, 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 that it's technically called Guyanism. It's a, it's a good illustration of the way Guyanism works. The point of all of this is every one of these, every one of these things that we're looking at is trying to find a source of values, meaning, and purpose. They are all trying to re-enchant a disenchanted world. There's one more really big one, though, um, at least in some circles that I, I am connected to, and that is uh, neo-paganism. Neo-paganism is probably the most direct source of re-enchantment that we run into. And now, I should note the, the term neo-pagan, they don't really like that word. Um, they, they tend to think that what neo implies is that it's somehow different from or changed paganism. It is, and if you push them on it, they'll tell you that. But they prefer either to call it paganism with a capital P as opposed to ancient paganism, which is in, in small p, lowercase p, uh, or modern paganism. I'm just gonna use neo-paganism, it's easier. Um, neo-paganism is probably the most direct root for re-enchanting the world because they see what they're doing very much in terms of magic. And I don't know how aware you are of what's going on in the neo-pagan world, but uh, a couple of things that are worth noting. First of all, there are two broad branches of neo-paganism. Uh, one of them is, it goes by a variety of different names, I tend to prefer to call it eclectic neo-paganism, which is where you pick and choose pieces of different from different sources and put them together into your own little religious system, Wicca being a great example of that. Uh, Wicca is really largely, most Wiccans date back to a guy named Gerald Gardner, who was pulling in ideas out of Hinduism, out of uh, Western esoteric traditions, out of uh, occult stuff, a variety of other things that he invented in religion. Wicca really dates to the early 20th century. No, no, not before that. Okay, so that would be an example of eclectic. They're pulling pieces that they like from different places and putting it together in a system. As a matter of fact, Gardner said, you know, he creates his uh, book of rituals and all of that called the Book of Shadows. And he basically said, look, this is mine. You should come up with your own. You're welcome to use anything I've got in here, but if you don't like something, throw it out. If you find something you want, put it in. You know, it's very much around this sort of eclectic idea. The alternative is sometimes called reconstruction, reconstructive, reconstructionist paganism, excuse me. Reconstructionist paganism is where they try to go to a single pagan tradition and bring it back. So there are people who do ancient Greek paganism. One of my former students worships ancient Egyptian gods using the Book of the Dead and other Egyptian writings. Um, you've got versions of this in Latvia. Arguably, arguably, Mongolian shamanism falls into this category because it was essentially exterminated and they're trying to recreate it. Um, Druids, although most of those are really eclectic rather than actually connected to Celtic practices because we don't really know anything about the way Celtic religion worked. 
Most importantly, though, is a group that call themselves heathens. At least for our purposes here, this is one I think I want to focus on the most. Heathens are people who worship the old Germanic or Norse gods. And once again, there are a variety of different forms of heathens. Some of them will uh, accept you no matter where you come from, what your background is, what your ethnicity is, arguing that if you're attracted to heathenism, you must be a reincarnated uh, Norseman. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They really argue that. Uh, some of them, though, are very, very much, no, this is religion for Nordic peoples and only Nordic people belong. And those tend to move rapidly into areas that, well, frankly, go straight to white supremacy. And I've met some of them too. They can be very scary people. But what are they doing? Two things here. They're trying to re-enchant the world, literally enchanting it, bringing magic back into it. Because all of these traditions use magic in one form or another. In some cases, um, if you look at the heathens, they actually advocate a number of things um, that are worthwhile values. They emphasize family. They emphasize um, supporting each other in relationships. They emphasize courage. They emphasize strength. They emphasize a lot of things that are genuine virtues. But they're going about it utterly the wrong way. The source of those virtues is not found in the Iron Age. It's found in God, the true God. They're also the, the ones that move to white supremacy, like all white supremacists. They're trying to re-enchant the world through that. Because what does white supremacy do? It gives you a cause. It gives you a purpose. It gives you a set of values and meaning. It gives you a destiny. It gives you all of those things that disappear in a disenchanted world. So when you're looking at these different kinds of movements, what I want you to be thinking about, what I want you to be asking yourself is, what are they after? What are they looking for? Because you'll find at the root of all of them, an attempt to deal with the meaninglessness of modern society. They are re they're attempting to re-engineer the world. Now, of course, they're doing this ultimately in the wrong way. The only thing that can re-engineer the world properly, the only thing that can bring meaning and purpose and values and destiny into the world is the gospel, which, as Tolkien argued, is the true fairy story, the place where you do, in fact, find enchantment. It's the true myth. It's the true explanation of the world that we're in. The fact of the matter is, Scripture tells us we live in an enchanted cosmos. We live in a world, a cosmos, first of all, a world of order and beauty, but a world of order and beauty that is infused with meaning. The biblical vision of the world, biblical metaphysics, says that the visible world that we are in is embedded in a much larger and richer invisible world. And that the visible and the invisible world interact with each other. It's not two sort of separate realms where the invisible does it, the invisible does it. They interpenetrate, they interact. And what happens in one can affect 
what happens in the other. That's an enchanted world. A world of time that we live in exists within eternity. The things we do in time resonate throughout eternity. Think about that. This is a picture of a world that is much richer than anything else anybody's got to offer. The physical world is interpenetrated by the spiritual. They interact, they work together. And because of this, we can talk about the world genuinely having meaning. The world does not exist by itself for itself. It points beyond itself to other things. In this world, you have a name. You have an identity. You don't have to find an identity or make up an identity. You have an identity. You are made in the image of God. You are a unique individual. You are both an individual, unique and complete to yourself, but you are also part of a community of individuals, all of whom share as their most foundational characteristic the fact that they're made in the image of God. Here's a hint for you. Anytime you place anything ahead of the image of God in determining human worth, you are guilty of idolatry, and you are also guilty of insulting God literally to his face. That is the foundation for human worth and value, and it beats anything BLM has thought. We have reason, because there's the logos, the word that is at the foundation of the creation through whom all things were made. Reason, logic, all of those kinds of things are there. You know, I didn't talk about the loss of reason, but let's put it this way. Five years ago, the sentence, a man can have a baby, would have been utterly meaningless. <laughs> now, you can get canceled or thrown off Facebook by denying that. Reason has disappeared from our world. In Christ, it's restored. Because he is the logos, the word that gives meaning, that is the root of logic, that is the root of all knowledge. And we have a system of order beauty. We've got the cosmos here. Now, what we're looking at here is what Tolkien calls recovery. I talked about this last night. Now, I want to put this in, in different terms than, than the ones Tolkien used. What Tolkien was pointing to is what I would call a sacramental vision of the world. Now, when we talk about the sacraments, when we talk about the Eucharist, when we talk about baptism, we mean specific things that God has given to the church as a means of grace for us to move forward. But the thing that is true of the sacraments is all of them point beyond themselves. The bread and wine are not just bread and wine. They point to deeper spiritual realities that give them meaning, that give them value, that give them purpose, that make them a means of grace. I'm not going to attempt to define what that, how exactly the two go together. That's way above my paper. <laughs> but just like the bread and wine in the Eucharist point beyond themselves to deeper spiritual realities, what I'm suggesting is that everything else in the world does too. 
Not to the same degree. They're not means of grace in the same way. But read the scriptures. This is getting at the question of natural theology that came up earlier. Read the scriptures. What do you see over and over again in the book of Psalms? What you see is that things in the physical world point to spiritual realities. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsels of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water, that yields its root and season, and his leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they're like chaff, that the wind blows away. Notice all of the natural language here. The world is intended to point us to deeper spiritual realities. The world, in other words, it's not just our words that have meaning, the world has meaning. You don't compare the righteous man to a dandelion. You compare him to a tree, because a tree means something. You compare him to a dandelion, which you say is his hair gets gray and then blows away. But, but that's not the point. The point is he's like a tree. It's something solid, something that, that's deeply rooted, that draws in water, that produces fruit. And even in the midst of all of this, the fruit comes in season, but the leaves never wither. There's a whole lot of truth that is buried there. You, can, you go through the Psalms, you will see over and over again, the natural world tells us things about the spiritual world. It's a sacramental world that we live in. Water, trees, seas, rocks, mountains, stars, all of these are mentioned in Scripture as things that point beyond themselves. In fact, we even hear that the heavens speak. They communicate. And then, of course, we have bread and wine, water, and so on. This is, by the way, the antidote to... 2SLGBTQQIA+. Because our bodies have meaning too. You can't be born in the wrong way. It's not possible. And further, the parts of our body have meaning as well. Ask any biologist and the Parts of your body that you use to engage in sexual activity are part of something that is known as the reproductive system. That tells you its purpose. Even biologists will tell you that. Things have natural ends, they have natural purposes. And this is part of the medium that God infuses in the universe. Uh, I've already talked about the image of God, I will skip over that part of it. There's a lot more going on with that than I can even really get into here. But what I just want to note, though, is that our redemption is a lot bigger than most evangelicals take it to be. For evangelicals, redemption is about forgiveness of sins and going to heaven. Typically, that's what you hear most often. And I'm speaking as someone who's coming out of the evangelical community here. That is an impoverished way of understanding what our redemption is. Now, if you think about that Gothic cathedral I told you about before, 
The doorway there talks about entering under the judgment seat of Christ. And they're really interesting, the, the tympanum and the doorway and things like that are really interesting. And you could spend a lot of time studying that. But if you spend all your time there, you never get to the real wonders of the cathedral, which only happen when you get inside and see the nave. If you've ever been in a Gothic cathedral, the first thing everybody does is this, and then their jaw drops. Because they, they are stunningly beautiful, and they're designed to draw your eye upward and raise it toward God. And they're, I hope if you haven't seen one, I hope someday you get the chance. It's amazing. The, the, the problem with us is we frequently think about redemption as that west doorway. We're so concerned about the entrance that we never get in to see the real glories of the gospel, which is more than the gospel of your salvation. It's more often than not Jesus would call it the gospel of the kingdom. And that's something that's much bigger and richer than just simply getting your sins forgiven and going to heaven. It also points to the idea that we end up getting the, the supreme good of, of, the, of redemption is that we have union with Christ. And we don't really think much about what that means. But again, it's one of these just incredible things that, that gives life meaning, purpose, value, destiny, all of these kinds of things that are completely lost in the The only and most powerful way of re-enchanting the world is through the gospel. Although even that is not correct, because we don't need to re-enchant the world. The world has never been disenchanted. The world has always been an enchanted world. What we need to do is to recover our vision of that enchanted world, that sacramental view of reality, the, the deeper things that we see in the world, the deeper meaning behind them. So, bottom line, gospel is the true fairy story. It is the true myth. Um, it is the true route to re-enchanting our imaginations. It offers us a bigger, more compelling, and awe-inspiring vision of what it means to be human and our role in this very deeply enchanted world. Like I said, we don't need to re-enchant the world because it has never truly been disenchanted. What we need to do is to recover a bigger vision of reality, to live it out with joy, and calling others to join us in going further up and further in. Thank you. Washer came up with a statement this past week. He 
spiritual life by comparing your prayer time to your screen time. That's an ouch. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, technology makes a great tool for a poor master. And I think it's got its place as a tool. To be honest with you, I don't really see a way of reading of, of, a, of enchanting it. There's a difference between a science fiction and fantasy. But, yeah, science fiction tends to be dystopian, by the way. One of the differences. Um, so I don't, I, I don't have a good answer to that in terms of whether it can be re-enchanted, but I think it, you can use it effectively as a tool. So for example, you can use it to watch panda videos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or look at, at, at things from the Hubble Space Telescope. Or to look at things on the microscopic level. So you can use it to look at the, the molecular machines that exist in cells and, and to show how they work. Uh, and all of these things can be a means through which we grow in our understanding and our appreciation and our awe at the world that God has created. So while I would say the technology itself, I have a hard time understanding exactly how you would enchant it. It can become a tool to help you see more of the enchanted world. Same with going into space. Um, astronauts who go into space tend to, be, to come back really kind of awestruck at what they've seen, at least in the subject. Not the Soviet cosmonauts so much, but uh, either side. That would be a good really suggestion there. I'm trying to think how to phrase this, but with all the CRT and all the LBGQ, all this critical race stuff, all this white supremacy, this stuff is screaming at people in our society right now. You see the modern church. What do you see for the modern church right now? Because I'm, I'm saying, I'm seeing the need for, the, it's, it's still the gospel that's needed. It's still, that is the answer for revealing the vision of the is is still what's needed to answer all these. But how do you see the modern church right now? You see it as, I hate to say it, but losing, losing the battle right now in, in many ways. I'm, I'm just wondering what you can say about the modern church. What do we need to do? Um, well, I, I would say, first of all, um, that the, the church has fallen into the trap by and large of thinking it's more important to be popular than to be faithful. That in the name of keeping doors open and not alienating people, we will accommodate to the culture as far as we have to, because that's the way that we can get people into the church and expose them to the gospel. But of course, in the process of doing that, you lose the gospel, because friendship with the world is enmity with God. What the church needs to do is what the church always needs to do, and that is to live lives of extravagant faithfulness. Um, I would say a couple of things in terms of the current cultural climate. First of all, take a deep breath. God is still sovereign. Jesus is still raised from the dead. God and God alone determines the rise and fall of nations. And even if this means the fall, if, if America collapses, uh, it doesn't really fundamentally matter because God also promises that all things will work out for our good. So there is no reason to panic. There is no reason to be afraid. 
What is needed is that we stay faithful to the gospel, which includes living lives of truly loving our neighbor. And truly loving our neighbor means, well, speaking the truth to them in love. But we cannot affirm things that we know to be false. We cannot affirm them in their sin and their religions. In order to do that effectively, what we need to do first is to build relationships. Um, it is only in the context of solid relationships with people that we stand a prayer, pardon the expression, of actually getting through to Otherwise, we just sound like another shrill voice attacking them. But it's really hard if you've lived a life of love with a person, if you've genuinely acted lovingly toward them. When you start disagreeing with them on some of these fundamental political or social issues, it's hard, it's much harder for them to dismiss you or to kick you out of their life if you've already got that relationship established. So it's important, I would say, the place we begin is building those relationships and treating each other with honor, respect, and dignity. Speak the truth in love as needed, as appropriate. Uh, don't, you don't necessarily have to leave with the things you disagree with. Um, it's generally a bad idea. Um, but remember, first of all, who's in control, and then live out life the way he has told you to live it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God first and foremost, but love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the other part of it, by the way, is uh, to remember that this is not just a, um, a war of ideas on an earthly level. That this is a genuine spiritual war that we are engaged in. And we need to be very active as well on the spiritual warfare front. Um, and what I would point out here is something that is generally overlooked. When we talk about spiritual warfare, the first thing that comes to mind is usually Ephesians 6, the put on the full armor of God. And, you know, we can go through all the different pieces of the armor and all that, but what everybody ignores is that Paul drops the image of armor after he runs out of pieces. But in the following verse, following two verses, he uses words referring to prayer something like six times in two verses. So put on the full armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, all of these kinds of things, and then pray, 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 pray. Where's the emphasis? We need to get serious about our prayer life, and we need to get serious about the fact that this isn't just a, a, a political or social argument, but this is a spiritual one. So those are some ideas that I would suggest. Any thoughts on uh, preaching as a means of re-enchanting the mind and the heart, and maybe recommendations on how that can be done well? I think preaching is critical here for reaching your own congregation. Um, and I, I think that there are a number of different tools that we can use. I mean, book groups and things like that are also helpful. But preaching, I think, is, is going to be one of the critical ones. And I think that the best way of doing this is to just simply let the scriptures do it for you. In fact, the matter is, if you're preaching through Psalms, you're going to run into these things. If you're preaching through Jesus' parables, you're going to run into natural theology. So bring it out and explain it and point out what the significance of it is and what it has to say about how we view the world uh, as a way of, of correcting 
the rather flat vision of it, the world of facts without meaning, that our culture typically promotes. I can't think of a way to phrase this as a proper question, but uh, do you think it's a helpful image? Um, everything you've been talking about reminds me of that scene at the beginning of the Cimmerillion where God has, is singing everything into existence. He's literally enchanting the world. He's creating the world with song, and he brings the whole heavenly chorus into it. And then you have, of course, that disturbance where uh, Melkor, the Satan figure, is um, disrupting the song with his own different song. Um, it's, it's like an anti-enchantment. And then there's this uh, disorder, and the, the song starts to fall apart, and God stands up. Um, do, do you think there's any way we could apply that to this? Yeah. I, I think it's no accident that Tolkien and Lewis both used singing as the means of creation, mm -hmm. because it is pointing to an enchanted world, yes. Um, and I actually had a reference to the music of the Iron in my notes that I wrote. So yes, you're absolutely right about that. By the way, I think it's worth noting that the evil in the world was caused by Melkor's singing the counter song. And when Eru finally speaks, he says, I'm going to show you what it is that you did. And that was the, that was the creation of the world. Mm -hmm. Which means to Tolkien, Melkor, or Morgoth, did not need to make a ring, because Middle-earth itself was his ring. This is in one of the uh, histories of Middle-earth called Morgoth's ring. Uh, the, the world itself is fundamentally corrupted by what Melkor did, and it goes down, in Tolkien's vision, it goes down literally into the earth itself. And Melkor himself, over time, gradually lost power because it was, his evil was, being seep, was seeping into the earth itself. That's another aspect of the that, that um, I think Galadriel was talking about. Excuse me, where 
I used to live in Connecticut, there's one there that has stadium seating, cup holders, and a stage with all kinds of smoke machines and light and all of that. I want you to ask yourself the question, what does the architecture of that room say? What, 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 if, what is communicated by the way that room is designed? Well, what it's communicating, it seems to me, is that this is an entertainment venue, and that I'm here to watch what's going on on the stage. Let alone the, the um, I, I think, uh, talked about uh, creating ecstasy. You know, let alone that. Just the space itself communicates a great deal about how they, they're thinking about what they're doing, or at least if, if they're thinking about it at all. I mean, it's a utilitarian space that to anyone entering is going to look like a concert venue. That's not a worship space, it's not a sacred space. So I think that I, I think that there is something to be said for creating churches that don't look like a concert venue, that look like a sacred space. I think that that is a very important thing. It doesn't have to be about the cathedral, okay? but we need, I think, to think more carefully about what we're doing and what, what it's saying. I, I was in a, uh, a church in China in Wenzhou. Uh, and when you went into the church, it was in an uh, office building, basically. When, when you went into the door, on your left-hand side, there was a tank of water with koi in it. And then there was a stair that went up to the, to the, um, main, the main worship area in the offices and things like that. The reason why I had a tank of koi there is that in the early church, uh, the Greek phrase that translates to Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, the initials form the word ichthus or fish. And therefore, fish, the fish was always used as a symbol for Jesus. You should be familiar with that. So they had the fish there to remind you of that. And the staircase itself wasn't a normal stair. It was set up as two sort of arcs so that if you looked at the design from above, it formed the Aether symbol, the fish symbol. And on the way up, on the wall, there was a painting of the lion, because Jesus isn't only the Aethus, the, the Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior, he's also the Lion of Judah. This was retrofitted into an office building. So, I mean, it's not, it's not beauty in the, in the sense of Gothic Cathedral or something like that, but they're thinking about what is this building saying in a way that goes way beyond just what's the utilitarian use of it. So there are all kinds of things like that that, that are much more subtle, perhaps, but that we can think through and do better. Experience, a grand fundamentalism that just said the world's 
the world is out here. These are some of the things that are going on, some of the responses. This is what I need to get a hold of. We need to get a hold of. And I'm saying, where, where, and you respond to part of this, where do I engage the people around me? Um, with the gospel. Yeah. Um, first of all, in terms of worlds out there, and maybe they'll leave us alone if we leave them alone. <laughs> Thucydides once said, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. <laughs> They're coming. So, so simply, you know, trying to fortify uh, is not going to work. Um, but where, where do you engage? Um, my question is, where don't you? Um, when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew, um, go into all the world and make, make disciples of all nations. He's going to come to all the world. Go make disciples of all nations. Okay. The word go there is not in Greek a command word. It's not imperative. It is a participle, which can have command force. But I think that, in fact, we need to take seriously the fact that it isn't a command. And what it suggests then is in your going, or where you go, or better, wherever you go, anywhere you go, make disciples. So the answer is we make disciples anywhere we go, everywhere we go. In all of our interactions with people, we need to be bringing the gospel to bear in terms of how we treat them, in terms of how we speak to them, and so on. I don't think it's a question of being in a holy hub. That's not what we're about. Um, as we go out, being, uh, being aware of, to use the, the topic of this particular talk, being aware of the fact that the world is enchanted is something that we can bring into our interactions with other people. You know, this is something that we should be doing regularly because Jesus' final command to us was to do that, to disciple people everywhere we go. So I, I, don't, I, I don't see a, a distinction between the two. I struggle with, and I, I, I'm, saying, I, I'm trying to figure out how to do this, but I understand that the people around me just don't forget the gospel. But they, they, they respond to some of these things, and, and they're totally inconsistent. It's like the person, the artist is trying to shock somebody. This isn't going to work if there isn't beauty out there. Right. How much it's shocking is impossible. Yeah. You know, but connecting with people on that level, on the level where they do know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, what I got to, this is going to sound like a cop-out, I'm afraid, but I got a whole other seminar on that. I really can't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the key things I think that's useful, I'll give you a couple of hints here. Uh, I would recommend a book by Greg Kopel called Tactics. Mm -hmm. Very good book in terms of how you, you engage with people. Um, but along with that, what I would suggest is that questions are our friend. Questions are our friend. Except we want to be the one asking them. <laughs> I think we think too often that we have to be the person providing the answers. We eat. We want to be the one asking the questions, because the person who asks the questions controls the conversation. And if you get in trouble with someone asking you a question, turn around and ask them a question about the question. <laughs> yeah. um, but but you can use, if you 
questions and get them thinking and talking, you're more likely to get them to recognize where maybe there are some problems or some things that, that they need to consider that they have. Um, and you can, you can then, um, you know, and when it becomes appropriate, you can start addressing those. Uh, a simple example that I am just waiting for the right opportunity to use. Um, when you do the, uh, a lot of the anti-racism curriculum, uh, or when you do Robin D'Angelo uh, White Fragility, when this is being promoted in schools, which it is, the question that I have is, do you really think that telling white, little white boys that all the problems in the world are their fault because they're white, do you really think that this is going to get them to say, gee, I'm sorry, or do you think it's going to drive them into white nationalism? It's a recipe for creating white nationalists, as near as I can tell. So you, you can raise questions to sort of put a, a pebble in their shoe. And that, that would I, I'd be, I think, a, a good, effective way to use it. So your nesting doll illustration was pretty thought-provoking. Um, is there any examples of scripture? I'm kind of talking about this guy's question here. You know, how do you engage? You said beauty is the gateway to the good and the true. So are there examples, maybe in scripture, like how that maybe plays out in a sense? Practically, yeah, I don't know of any scriptural examples of that. Um, I can give you a lot of historical examples. Yeah, um, that you know, art, um, even Renaissance art, which we frequently think of as secular, a huge percentage of it was religious and had um, had didactic purposes. You know, the beauty would draw you in, and there were lessons to be drawn from it. Um, so, like I said, there are historical examples. I can't think of one off the top of my head in scripture. In, in our uh, um, project of recovering uh, an enchantment, enchantment in the world and recovering a sacramental vision of the world, how do we keep the, it from becoming a capital sacramental vision? How do we keep it lowercase sacrament versus uh, everything's a sacrament, and if everything's a This is why I like using the word sacramental vision rather than, you know, I reserve the word sacrament for the things that are sacraments. Sure. But uh, we're, we're using the word almost uh, as an, uh, as, uh, it's not quite a metaphor, it's more literal than a metaphor, but it's going along those lines. What the sacraments do for us on a large scale, we need to think about the world doing on a small scale for us as well. That, that's the way I'm 